This Palm Sunday, we spent most of our time together in our worship service in prayer. We had several prayer activities that we did and that were led by people from our community. We started by praying for the needs of the world and then the church and then ourselves. At that point, we had the sermon, and then we had kind of a mirror image of prayers for ourselves, the church, and the world, but in a slightly different light. So I would invite you, if you are interested in doing so, to spend a few minutes in prayer yourself before you listen to the sermon that I gave, praying for the needs of the world, what's wrong in the church, the ways that the church church needs to repent, what you need from Jesus yourself, and then you can unpause and come back to the sermon. When we worked our way through the book of Jeremiah last year, one of the key themes that wove its way through the book was exile, that God's people were soon to face the consequences of having put their trust in not gods instead of the true God, and that the heart of those consequences was that they would be forcibly removed from the land, the promised land, the place where Yahweh's temple was, and which was supposed to be theirs forever. Jeremiah warns of this exile, no one listens, and then the exile comes. But then Jeremiah says there will come a day when return will occur, when the people will be back in the promised land and the exile will be over. The scholar N.T. Wright, who I I mentioned now and again, makes the point that despite being physically back in Judea, the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have felt strongly that they were still, in any meaningful respect, in a state of exile. Because the whole point of being in the land was being able to be the people of God in the way that the Old Testament law and prophets described. It's no use being back in the land, but not being able to enact the commands and promises of God. You're basically still in exile then. So with Rome in control, there was no real return. The exile continued. Which is why, of course, the people looked forward to a Messiah who would come to overthrow Rome and put things right again. A leader who would drive out the armies that were preventing exile from ending, that were preventing them from truly being the people of God, who would deal with the external powers that were getting in their way. And so that's what happened when Jesus comes riding into town on the foal of a donkey. He is making a very clear statement. This is from Matthew chapter 21, that he is coming to be king. He is the Messiah that you have been waiting for. Riding in on a donkey instead of a war horse means he comes to bring peace, not war. It kind of would have been a way of signifying that the battle has already been won. I don't need my war horse anymore because now it's time for peace. And this would have been okay in people's minds, even though the Romans were still there. There are plenty of stories of God driving off the enemies of God's people with barely a sword being drawn. And so the people cry out, if you'll allow me to paraphrase a little, long live the king! And they wait for the Messiah to get to work. And he does, but not how they expect it. You can imagine the crowds following after Jesus, whispering to each other and wondering what Jesus' first stop is going to be. The Roman garrison to drive the troops out, the palace of the Roman governor to put him under arrest. But he passes by those buildings and rides on to another. The temple? Jesus goes in, turns over the tables, echoes the very same criticism of the temple that we heard Jeremiah level against the temple of his day. And then we're told he stays the night outside the city and then comes back towards it the next day. And on his way to Jerusalem, he passes by a fig tree. Jesus is hungry, Matthew tells us. But when he goes to inspect the tree, he finds no fruit. And he curses the tree and it immediately withers. Which at first glance might cause us to be like, hey, grow up, Jesus. There's no fruit. Okay, what's the big deal? One key to understanding here, though, and some of you may have already known this at some point along the line, is that a fig tree has long been a symbol for Israel. 
sitting under your fig tree was, I don't know, like the white picket fence of the day. It's living the dream. And so while Jesus's hunger is the immediate cause here, he's intentionally making a symbolic point. The fig tree stands for Israel. Israel has not borne the fruit she is supposed to have, and so she will wither. This isn't sounding quite like the return from exile everyone was expecting. In fact, it's very much like Jesus is saying to the people of Jerusalem, you all think that the reason you aren't fulfilling your destiny as the people of God is external, that the Romans are preventing you from returning from exile. But actually, the problem is much closer to home. It is internal. You are the ones preventing your own return from exile. What's holding you back isn't out there. It's in here. And the way back from exile isn't by driving out the Romans, it's by repenting and putting your trust in Yahweh. It's by becoming the people of God that you were always supposed to be. Stop blaming everyone else and get your own house in order. Take the log out of your own eyes, to use his words in another context. Christians still do this today, of course, blaming outside forces for getting in our way. Social distancing orders for church services and sports leagues scheduling games on Sundays. We can't be a real church under those conditions. No prayer in school and abortion and racism, those are what are preventing the kingdom from coming on earth as it is in heaven. Secularism and humanism and Hollywood and whatever the boogeyman for the day is, those are the things that are preventing us from really having an impact. But if Jesus came today, I think the reality would be much the same as it was back then. His first stop would be throwing over some tables inside the church, reminding us that there is no outside force that can stop us from being the people of God. One of the promises Matthew records as Jesus and the disciples make their way to Jerusalem is Jesus saying that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. We can be the people of God anywhere, under any circumstances. As anyone who has studied church history, and especially the stories of churches under repressive and violent regimes, will know, most of the New Testament is written to churches who are enduring the worst that Rome can throw at them, and they're thriving. There is no outside force that can prevent us from being who God has called us to be. The only thing that can prevent God's people from being God's people is God's people. And so we invite Jesus to be king of our hearts, of our church, of our world. And we work to make that more and more a reality on earth as it is in heaven. Without getting discouraged or intimidated by all the ways that the world doesn't reflect God's kingdom. Because we know that Jesus is king and that the day is coming when the whole world will agree and will reflect his goodness and justice and life. And so when we were together, we turned then to praying again for ourselves, for our church and for the world, praying that Jesus would be king in each of those areas and that by being king, Jesus's goodness and justice and life would come and become a reality. So I would invite you to do the same. Take a few minutes now to pray for yourself, for your church. You can pray for our church too, if you want, and for the world, that Jesus would truly be king in all those areas and that Jesus's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.